Okay, welcome back to Plato's Cave. With me, I have Adam Cadlack. He is a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest and the author of a, an upcoming book, The Ethics of Sports Fandom, which we're talking about a chapter of that today. So Adam, thanks uh, for joining me. Really great to be here. So, you know, I, I wanted to say it's very brave of you to, to come on here with a uh, pit fan after what we did to Wake Forest in the ACC championship. <laughs> Yeah, so that didn't go how most Wake people uh, people sort of hoped. Um, it was a good season for the for the Deeks, though. Um, you know, I, I occupy this sort of strange place with respect to Wake Forest athletics. On the one hand, I'm, I support them, students in my class, and so on. But um, as a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, mm. all of my strong loyalties uh, run that way. I'm more of a parental kind of observer of, of students when they're where that I, that I know uh, when they're on the field. So I was obviously just disappointed for the students that I happen to know, but I didn't experience the pain quite as a, as a fan in the same way that I did when, you know, Wisconsin lost to Minnesota. Mm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, they had a good season and I'm sure the pain wasn't nearly as bad as, um, as, uh, as what, what kicking it, kicking it on fourth down last year, um, the Packers yeah, the, and the... the Packers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, you know, I have one of the things that comes out in the book is that I have a lot of loyalties. <laughs> I have a lot of different teams and there's always the next game. And so the pain, the pain lingers a bit, but, um, you know, Packers are having a really good season. And that seems like a long, that seems like a long time ago. There are occasional losses that you can bring up and they still really sting. Yeah. Uh, Wisconsin's loss in the uh, basketball title game to Duke a few oh, years ago yeah. still hurts when you, <laughs> when you talk about that. Honestly, the Packers lost to the Broncos in the Super Bowl back in, oh, what was that? 98. Yeah. Um, I was still in, I was still in college at the time. That one still hurts. <laughs> the Packers were the better team, but you know, again, you, you move on to the next game. Yeah, definitely. Um, so like I said, we're talking about, you were kind enough to send me um, two chapters, but I, I really want to focus on the fourth one, um, which is titled avoiding the pitfalls of objectification. And um, so, so this book is, so it has a publication, date of 2022 and it's available for pre-order in a couple of days, right? It's yeah. And it's already shipped. I know people who have it in their hands, although oh, okay. I, I am not one of them yet. <laughs> I haven't received my hard copies. Um, but I know people, uh, I have a friend in Germany who emailed me last week and said he had gotten his copy, hmm. uh, a friend from high school screenshotted, a uh, him holding the book. So it's out if you, yeah, you can order it from Rutledge, um, or, I don't know if Amazon has shipped their copies yet, but um, okay. yeah, you can get it now. So okay, it's on its way out, and I'm hoping to see it soon. Yeah, yeah, nice. That's I, I that's kind of surprising that the like the author doesn't have his copies first. I have theories about why that happened. If I don't have them soon, I'll email somebody and see what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I can say to anyone listening, the the number one crime you don't commit, at least in the chapters that I read is ruining sports. Like, you know, there, there was a real risk of, you know, I could, I could totally see someone else just butchering this with like, you know, uh, overly conceptually analysis, uh, analyzing things and necessary and sufficient conditions for every little thing and just, and just taking the fun out of it, but you don't do that. So. Well, that's good. That certainly wasn't my goal. Although I, I did, I did decide that if all I was going to say was everything fans do all the time is fine, then that probably wasn't going to be a very interesting book. Um, so there are some revisionary contentions in the in the book, and I, I do sort of even in my with my own fandom um, have thought as I've been working on the project about some things that I should approach differently or think about differently and so on. But yeah, it certainly wasn't my goal to ruin sports for anybody. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was at the end of the day to try to argue for the pro appropriate good place hmm. that being a sports fan can occupy uh, in our lives. And so, yeah, the killing, killing the joy of sports was not the goal, but putting it in a different sort of perspective and thinking about how we can think about sports better hmm. uh, certainly was the goal. Yeah. Yeah. It, actually, in this in this chapter that I, I read of yours, you made me realize, I, th I think there are at least two things that I made a note of 
in the margins that I I was doing that I actually didn't even realize that I was doing. So it's a it's a good kind of um, introspection as a sports fan. You know, I'm a big Steelers fan. Um, so this is not our year, obviously, but <laughs> so, so the chapter is all about objectification. Um, and the reason why I was interested in this is because I've been really getting into, um, you know, P.F. Strawson's freedom and resentment, where he defines the reactive and the objective attitudes, and then all of the subsequent work about that. And you cite kind of the, maybe the main, um, citation that the chapter builds off of is this really popular paper by Martha Nussbaum in 1995, uh, just titled Objectification, which I actually haven't read, but the excerpts that you give, I'm, I'm definitely going to read it now. Um, so she, she gives these kind of seven um, that you kind of introduce the chapter with um, seven aspects. Uh, Nussbaum doesn't think they're necessary and sufficient, right? But they're, but they're seven aspects of objectification. Uh, and so maybe, maybe I can just read through them and then we can talk about them. Yeah, that's great. Okay, cool. So there's instrumentality, which is where one treats, uh, another as a tool of one's own purposes. There's denial of autonomy where one treats another as lacking in autonomy and self-determination. There's inertness, which is where you treat someone as lacking agency and activity fungibility, where someone is interchangeable with another thing or person of the same type and with various things of other types. There's volubility, which is where one treats another as lacking in boundary integrity and as something that is permissible to break up or, or smash or break into pieces. Uh, ownership, where someone treats another as something that is to be owned or bought and sold, traded, etc. And seventh is denial of subjectivity, which is where one treats another as something whose experience and feelings, if any, need not be taken into account. Um, so these are super interesting. And, and the one that really jumped out to me at first was ownership. You know, we even call yeah. there the, the, are team owners and, yeah. and players are really bought and sold as a commodity. Yeah. Uh, so the, one of the things that was challenging about working on the, the project is that you touch on all these other debates, you wade into all these other debates hmm. uh, of which you are not a central participant. <laughs> and so you, you, I was constantly worried. And to this day, I'm worried about wading into territory where I'm kind of out of my depth and where people who are steeped in the debate are going to say, yeah, well, but this, and, and it, I decided at a certain point that was just a risk of the kind of project that I was was going to try to do because what I want, really wanted to do was draw on all these things mm -hmm. to help us understand fandom better. Um, my interest in objectification, actually, the, the overall project started out, out just focused on football. I was going to try to do basically a book about contemporary moral problems in the current state of American football and, you know, in ways that are no longer reconstructable, reconstructable, I can't, can no longer reconstruct in my head. I kind of waded into this idea of objectification because there's this distance that fans have from what's going on in the field where we can forget quite easily that it's human beings who are, who are playing the games, mm. right? And we can think of them just as, um, just as athletes, just as bodies performing, which is kind of the language that I start to use later in the chapter. And the the parallels with pornography ended up being kind of obvious to me just mm. as a way, as a lens, ethical lens to think about what's going on. And I, I don't make a claim in the paper about, you know, the ethical permissibility or not of pornography, but the language on objectification in the literature on pornography, I think sheds interesting light on sort of how we engage with um, athletes and how we view them as, as property. And it's really striking the, you know, I had a conversation with a, a friend a few years ago about the, the NFL combine. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you ever watch footage of the combine, it's, you know, guys essentially in their underwear are doing all sorts of athletic things and yeah. they take all these measurements and they, you know, they're, they're like poked and prodded and they're measured and they take all these statistics and so on. Um, and us particularly in a context where so many of the athletes are black, you get mm -hmm. a really disconcerting uh, echo of 
of slavery and treating treating bodies as property solely in terms of what they're able to do. Um, and you know, rather than rather than remembering that, that body belongs to belongs to or is a human being, is a person that is not reducible to you know what they're able to do on the field. Um, and as fans, you know, I've you know certainly done this plenty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you you think about the the player you're angry at. It's almost always when you're upset with them, <laughs> yeah. um, or you know dissatisfied that they didn't make the play or whatever it happens to be, uh, that, that you forget there's a person behind the, in football, particularly, maybe it's easier because they're wearing helmets and you don't see their faces as much, but you know, you forget that that's a, it's a person there. And in terms of, yeah, the language of buying, selling, trading players as commodities, Hmm. um, is sort of shot through the sports industrial complex. Now that's not always that's not always bad. I mean, you, you know, it, the way in which contracts are arranged and, and your teams are trying to improve themselves and they're trying to get better players. I mean, part of that's just business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think remembering that it's a business that involves human beings, not just, not just bodies is, is important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was the thing that really kind of, um, it really struck me as I was reading this is for, for a lot of these things, there's almost no other way in which they could happen, but the degree to which we do objectify them is something that could be attenuated while still not losing. I mean, like you said, you know, sports have to acquire and, and trade and, and do all these things with players. And that's just going to be part of the part of the game, but it's almost, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I take it you're kind of making a degree argument here. It's like, whoa, whoa, we're a little too, in some cases, a little too easily objectifying and too um, objectifying in, in its totality towards people. Yeah, I think that's fair. I Yes, I think that's fair. I think there's also the questions about, and I touch on this later in the chapter, the way we view athletes when they're not on the field, right? And what mm-hmm. we expect of them when they're not on the field. And I try to draw the connection to the sort of view that a lot of people seem to have that athletes should just stick to sports mm-hmm. and that they yeah. are, their views on social questions and moral questions just shouldn't be, I mean, they don't have standing mm-hmm. to speak and why, you know, you get paid to play. Um, what you have to say about these political issues shouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's a way in which, you know, thinking and remembering that none of us want to be treated that way, whatever our line of work, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, I teach classes and uh, produce philosophical research that I hope is interesting, but that's not all I am. I do all sorts. I mean, I, I'm interested in sports. I have a family. Yeah. I have a vibrant life outside of the way in which a lot of people relate to me um, mm. and denying people that extension of their humanity and saying, no, look, this is what you are. This is all your, this is your only worth um, I think is really problematic too. So there's the way in which you think about what's going on when it's on the field. Mm. And I think the, the biggest way in which trying to de-objectify players has affected me in that regard is just remembering that they're, they're people, <laughs> that they're trying. In almost every case, they're trying. Um, and they may or may not be successful, but they're, but they're people. And that's actually made me more sympathetic to athletes um, mm-hmm. just in general. You know, feel, I feel bad for the athletes when, well, when they're on my team and they don't win my favorite teams and and they don't win. Um, and you feel happier for them when they're successful and so on, but also to remember that they're not just what they are on the field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, helmets and pads in football specifically kind of obscuring the humanity of people, but I just, I saw this now. I mean, we even identify them by numbers, you know, it's like, it's we're, we're serializing them too. Um, so, so that's interesting. And yet what you said, you know, I had a note, it, it kind of struck me that, uh, a lot, you know, a lot of this chapter is pointing out some of the costs while not denying a lot of the benefits that athletes, you know, have in their job. Right. And this, and this is a job and it, it kind of made me think, you know, wow, a lot of the, and maybe philosophy isn't quite the best example of this, but just if you have some office job, you know, it has a lot of these same costs, these same ways in which employees are objectified with 
a fraction of the benefits to an, a professional athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this analysis can extend to all sorts of, you know, all sorts of different areas. I think what makes it particularly relevant in sports, and I touch on this in the chapter, um, is that the, I think the fact that there are such benefits, um, particularly financial benefits for at least the top, the top mm -hmm. level players obscures the fact that this, that they can still be objectified. It makes it easier for us to sort of explain away the objectifying um, aspects of their, their job and to think, well, look, you get, you get paid to play, you get, you get paid a whole lot of money to play. Um, and therefore people might more easily slide into the conclusion that, well, you just, you can't be objectified in that way. I think there's also this aspirational feature where, you know, most boys that I knew growing up at some point in their lives wanted to be a professional athlete of some sort. You know, we grow up projecting ourselves into what's going on the field, going on on the field. And so when we, when some part of it, I mean, you know, most people give that up at some point. And for me, you know, I gave it up long time ago. Um, <laughs> But there's some part of the back of your mind that is still thinks, oh, how cool would it be to, you know, catch the winning touchdown in a Super Bowl? And that also can make us think that, can make us Im immune, isn't the right word, blind mm. um, to the fact that we can also objectify these same athletes that we, that we seem to admire. I mean, I think a similar dynamic comes up every time there's some labor negotiation, what the Major League Baseball is locked out right now. and. Mm you people frame it in terms of, um, you know, millionaires and billionaires arguing about, you know, uh, what, how many zeros are going to be on their checks. And there's a way in which that's, I think, partially fair for a lot of people who are just struggling to get by. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also the case not to be too um, Marxian about it, but it's also a case of, you know, labor and capital. And, and the fact that, that so much money is at stake can lead us to forget that, oh, wait, Aaron Rodgers is an employee. Mm. <laughs> um, and in fact, he's a union employee. And um, when that kind of status comes into view, he's a very, 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 very well compensated union employee. Um, but in terms of the power structure of sports, I think it's, again, something that's easy, you know, easy to forget. Mm. Although this offseason, I don't think anyone forgot how much of an employee Rogers was. That was his main. No, that's absolutely. <laughs> but that's in some ways, this is, this is um, especially as a lifelong Green Bay Packers fan who absolutely loves watching Aaron Rodgers play football. I mean, I, it's just um, stunning. I think what he's able to do. It's a good, good reminder, a good test of the kind of arguments I made in the chapter where he's, he's doing things. Well, there's two, two, there's two aspects to this. One is, uh, in his labor negotiations and deciding whether or not he's going to come back mm. as a Packers fan who wants them to win. I want him to come back, but it turns out it's not by life. <laughs> and we fans have a tendency, I think, to hold athletes to standards in their commitments to their jobs that they don't hold themselves to, mm. or maybe all sorts of other people in their lives. I mean, people change jobs all the time when they think they can have a better employment situation, whether it's financial or whatever other reason that, that we want to move to another job. Mm. Um, and yet we expect, we expect players to have the same commitment to the teams that we love that we have. Um, I have a, I have a colleague in the philosophy department who still cannot stand Carlton Fisk because he left um, the Red Sox for the White Sox <laughs> back in, this is the seventies, you know, oh, wow. um, but my, and we've had this conversation. My point is, well, he, he got a better, he got a different job, right? He, he, he wanted to work, he wanted to work somewhere else. Yeah. Um, and I think the commitment that the players have, so that was a good reminder. It was a good test case for me to be like, well, if he wants to play somewhere else, it's, you know, I'll be sad in a sense that he's not, I don't get to watch him play as a fan of the team that I support. Mm. Um, but it's, it's his job. Then there's, then there was the, all the vaccine stuff um, at the a few weeks ago, the COVID yeah. stuff. When it tests your, when when he's now saying things with which I personally disagree, and I think he's made a bad personal decision and a bad um, ethical decision in some way. Mm. Um, 
what are the limits of the objective? What, what leeway do we give athletes to speak when they're saying things that we don't agree with? If I'm going to say, well, we shouldn't silence athletes like Colin Kaepernick, who are standing up for causes that I support, are we more licensed to silence them and say, well, shut up and, you know, stick to sports Hmm. when they say things that we don't agree with. That was another kind of good test of the good test of the theory. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That, that was an excellent test. You know, I wonder um, you just made me think of this now. So, you know, when we're, when we're kind of, voting on or, or analyzing people for the MVP, right? And Rogers is leading that conversation right now. There's an interesting way in which it's almost more fair to quasi-objectify people. So you, I'm sure there are people making the argument that, look, Rogers shouldn't be a candidate for MVP because he uh, deceived like the league and the league officials and, and violated protocol by because you're supposed to wear a, a mask at press conferences and he didn't because, yeah. yeah. So um, there's, a, there's a way in which, and I wonder if this just depends on the standards by which you evaluate an MB, MVP candidate. Does it include off the field antics or not? Um, but there's, I mean, I could see someone kind of go, going, you know, okay, Adam, fine. But what about this scenario, um, in which it's actually more fair to objectify people in a sense and only look at their on-field performance when evaluating them for MVP. Yeah, that's a that's a really good, uh, really good case study. I I confess that I'm one of these people that individual awards in team sports. I just I don't I don't know what to do with, um, and I personally don't really care about. Um, but we had the same. So that's not to dismiss the question. It's just to state my own personal view that I don't know what to do with this sort of stuff. And then um, we've, there's been the same sort of conversation most of my life about Pete Rose and the uh, baseball hall of fame mm. who, you know, by any objective measure of what he did on the field is a all-time great player. And yet he's not in there because of stuff that he did off the field. Um, I think. So. I think it would be really hard to give someone the MVP who, I mean, you can run just ridiculous thought experiments, right? Like suppose you found out right after the season was over that they were engaged in some, I don't know, just really horrific. Something crazy. Yeah. Just something. Yeah. I don't, you can fill in the blank. Are there cases where that maybe should remove them from contention for the MVP? Rob, probably, so, pro- probably, like but again, here, yes. but, yeah. but, but where do you, I mean, again, maybe this is a getting back to the point that it's an argument about degree. Where do you, where do you sort of draw that line? Hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think, do I think that Rogers um, transgressions such as they've been are egregious enough to mean that it's just totally illegitimate to root for it, to vote for him for MVP. No, no. Yeah. Um, I also, again, I'm on, on record saying, you know, look, whatever MVP, MVP doesn't, <laughs> yeah. what matters is what matters is what they're able to do mm-hmm. uh, as a team on the field, in my view. Um, yeah. But that's just my own quirky thing. I think the Rose case is, a, is maybe a little different. And this is the argument that people have made for a long time is that his trans is that his transgression went to gambling on baseball, went to the integrity of the sport. Hmm. And it wasn't, so it wasn't necessarily the degree to which he did something bad. It was the particular sort of bad thing that he did. Hmm. Um, And I've actually generally found that argument sort of convincing in the sense that if you do something that goes to the integrity of what's happening on the field, the very thing for which you are being honored, um, that does strike me as at least potentially different. Yeah. And then, for example, had he had Rose, um, I don't know, not, you know, robbed a liquor store or something. Something totally unrelated. Um, yeah. Totally unrelated. Yeah. Yeah. I almost wonder if I almost wonder if there's also a difference between whether they commit the act that is potentially barring them from what, you know, whatever it is, the Hall of Fame or the MVP after the award has been 
given as opposed to before. Uh, so you, you know, you could totally like, it's not even conceivable, you know, pretend you think that Roger's tr- bending the truth at best about his <laughs> immunization status um, or vaccination status. Cause that was the word he used. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's say you See, think he that, that he did actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I, the point there is that in most people's minds, they are interchangeable, you know? So, right. So right. saying, exactly. yeah. Um, so let's say that you're someone who thinks that that should be, uh, something that wipes out his MVP status. I think it's inconceivable that you would say that that he should be stripped of last year's MVP, right? Like that doesn't I, even seem in the realm of possibility. I think that's, I think that's probably, yeah, I think that's probably right. Yeah. But I mean, would you, would you even strip him of that MVP if he, I don't know, committed some heinous murder in the off season? No. I, yeah. You know, I get the intuition. No. Yeah. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure. I think yeah. the, again, the question, the interesting ethical questions for me around the Rogers case this year are, you know, was he treated equally to other people who committed similar infractions? It's not clear that he was actually, um, yeah. like, like he was, he was given a little bit of a pass maybe in terms of what his, uh, what his, um, sanctions should have been. Yeah. Um, and that seems, that seems bad to mm. me. Um, you know, I had a, I had a op-ed kind of rolling around about the, that whole thing. Um, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of sanctimony, even among Packers fans. I had some people in my social network circles that were saying, you know, look, I would rather, you know, lose every game now than have, and win with, win with Rogers at the helm. And I said, first of all, easy, give it two give it two weeks and you're going to feel very differently. I suspect. Yeah. Um, moreover, and more importantly, there is this dynamic about, you know, I tr- we're already supporting teams that have people on them that believe very crazy things and do ethically questionable things. Um, Rogers just a got caught and B is one of the most famous athletes in the world. (laughs) So, you know, the moralization of our, this is something I actually talk about in the previous chapter um, about partisan fandom, the moralization of our sporting attachments, I think is something that, is generally probably best mm. left aside, at least in terms of justifying our own attachments to ourselves. Um, you know, I think, and I don't know, I have to revisit with some of these people that made this claim. If the Packers go on to win the Super Bowl, like, are they posting on Facebook how happy they are? Or yeah. am I going to hold them and say, you know what, you said you'd rather lose every game. <laughs> you'd rather the Packers lose every game for the rest of the season than win with Rodgers at the helm. I Did you really mean that? Yeah. Did you celebrate when they won or yeah. Yeah. That would be a good kind of a hypocrisy test. Yes. So this was um, what you, what you kind of said. So, so one of the questions that I I wanted to get into you with um, and I kind of have mixed feelings about is to what degree, whether I guess there's two questions I'd like to explore to, to what first one is to what degree objectification is the problem as opposed to um, you know, maybe the, the expression of ethically questionable reactive attitudes of, you know, blame, anger, indignation, resentment, something like that. Right. And then the second question is uh, how, how we define or kind of what constitutes objectification. So one, so the, so to the first question uh, and you, and you kind of, it was funny. I actually was, you know, I was kind of, I printed, printed out the proof you sent me and I was writing notes in the margins and I love, I love when this happens when I'm reading, but I, I would write a question, you know, we're like, eh, I don't know what I think about this. And then the next paragraph would be you addressing that question. So it was, it was perfect. It happens sense. sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so one of the questions that this happened with is, you know, cause I, I kind of wrote in a margin, you know, I wonder like to, to what extent are a lot of these problems actually due to my not really objectifying fans in the sense of dehumanizing them. Um, but, but I wonder in what sense is this uh, an issue of me treating these people kind of as if I would react to someone who had wronged me in a way that these players obviously haven't. Yeah. Uh, so I don't intend objectification to be an exhaustive analysis of all the problems that can go wrong in fandom Hmm. uh, by any stretch. 
it is, I think, a particular, it, the, the effort was just to, to do something which isn't my usual mode of doing philosophy, which is to take, take one lens and that's usually directed at one thing and directed at something else and see what shows up. Mm. Um, and I ended up thinking it's a fairly fruitful lens to think about at least some of the things that can go wrong in the relationship between fans uh, and players. I absolutely also think that this notion that fans are somehow wronged mm. uh, when things don't go right on the field or that players owe something in particular to fans. And I, I, I wrestle a little bit with what actually do players owe fans. Um, my inclination is to say not very much, but we can, we can, we can get back to that. But I absolutely think that this sense that, you know, we are wronged as fans when things don't go the way we want them to, for example, that Rogers was wronging. If he goes to another team that he's somehow wronging the green Bay Packers fan base in the sense that they, Oh, you know, he owes mm. us his undying, you know, loyalty <laughs> yeah. or that, or that coaches, I mean, you know, coaches make decisions that we don't like all the time or that we disagree with all the time. Have they, have they wronged us by, you know, going for a field goal instead of, of not when we, even if it's the wrong decision, even mm. if some in sort of some strategic sense on the field, it's the wrong decision. Have they, wronged me as a fan by depriving me of what i mean what to what am i entitled <laughs> i'm yeah. certainly not entitled to, <laughs> to a win having my team having <laughs> the teams i support win championships no one's entitled to that um so so in what what sense have i been wronged and i absolutely think that fans do feel aggrieved <laughs> in that <laughs> oh, way yeah. we we you know we sometimes do feel entitled to those sorts of things and yeah maybe the lens of the reactive attitudes is a would be another kind of fruitful lens for thinking about, you know, it's not one that I, it's not one that I talk about in the, the, in the book at all, but um, it certainly strikes me as another lens that could be fruitful in thinking about, well, how are some of the ways in which this relationship can kind of go awry? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm absolutely, that's, that's really interesting. Again, not something specifically that I've thought of in those terms, but it strikes me as, as plausible. I do talk at various points throughout the book about this question of, you know, what do, do players owe fans? Mm. I think um, a lot of this is layered on top of the identification that fans have with their team. So the first chapter in the book is uh, entitled on we, mm. not the emotion, but on mm -hmm. we, and the way in which fans invoke first person plural when they're talking about their teams and this strong identification that we have that what happens on the field happens to us in some way mm -hmm. <laughs> um, is something that probably feeds this sense that we've been wronged. Um, yeah. There's just a strong, such a strong identification with the teams we support. And that's, that's something that I think is better held at arm's length. Uh, that's sort of the brunt, the, the burden of that chapter is to, to suggest that sort of a strong identification is probably better left, uh, better mm. left aside. But yeah, that, that, so I'm, I'm a pluralist about um, the frameworks that we can use to kind of get at what's going on here. And I like that, that notion of the reactive attitudes is really interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about the kind of reactive attitudes in, in being a fan of a team. And like the, you know, this year, the Steelers are a perfect example of that where they've just, I mean, it's been brutal being a Steelers fan this year. And um, one, one thing that is maybe, maybe it's, it's a bit of an attenuation, a bit of a door is, is I don't remember the quote that you give, but you, but you say that there can be this kind of ironic sense that you're um you know, blaming people or, or getting really angry at people. And I, I find yeah. that to be true where, you know, I have I, one of my, one of my oldest friends and I are like, you know, huge Steelers fans. And, you know, sometimes we'll be talking like, you know, while we're both watching the game or after the game or whatever, and we'll just be indignant at some call yeah. that Tomlin made, whereas he, he decided to punt and we're, we're, what are you doing? And there's just like the full, like the, the gates of, of the reactive attitudes open but at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, all of those are a little bit ironic where the, he's the coach. I'm obviously not going to do as good a job as he would, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think I think the example I use is when we hate when we talk about how much we hate players. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the example I, I know I use this example at some point is uh, Randy Moss. You know, yeah. yeah, back when he played for the Vikings, he just he murdered the Packers every time they would play, and he has a certain brashness about him that made him easy to hate, quote unquote, as an opposing player. Um, well, I'm trying to think right now. I, I've tried. I sort of try to resist <laughs> resist that language. I mean, I, I talk freely about teams that I hate. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vikings being one of them. Mm. Um, but do I really? Well, maybe you, maybe it's easier to hate teams legitimately. But but players. I mean, I did I. And even back then, did I really hate Randy Moss? No. Yeah. And I would have taken him on the Packers and. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. Far far throwing. That was back in the Brett Favre era. Far throwing to Moss would have been lethal. Just yeah. absolutely lethal, <laughs> and so I would have taken him on the team in two seconds. And I didn't. And actually, in his post uh, playing career, I actually enjoy listening. I mean, he I can't remember if he works for ESPN now or what he did for a yeah. while. He's sort of interesting to listen to, a fun fun guy to hear talk. So, yeah, this kind of ironic ironic distance that we hold our emotions mm. um, or our feelings about particular players. I'm not sure. I mean, one of the things that I hope results if people are convinced by the book and internalize its arguments is for all of us to hold some of our emotions um, at a little bit more of a, of a distance. I don't know if it's an ironic distance, but at a little bit more of a distance to put them in a slightly different perspective, remembering, and you know, you might, you might make the argument, well, it's just sports. It doesn't really matter. And that's actually something I try to distance myself from. I, I, I don't want to trivialize sports. I think if, if anything is important, sports probably are in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I think keeping in mind that what happens on the field doesn't this it's this identification thing, right? Isn't isn't really something that happens to us as fans, at least in the same way as it happens to the players. Um, and so, you know, I still get emotional during I go happy, upset. Um, the um, certain losses are harder to shake off than others, but trying to keep our emotions in a certain kind of perspective, I think is one of the, one of the burdens of the, mm. the book. Yeah. <clears throat> so I want to, I want to circle back to the second kind of um, question that I have mixed feelings about, and that is what constitutes objectification um, yeah. because you, so you, you lay out um, Nussbaum's seven, aspects of of objectification and then you kind of juxtapose it or or you add some commentary by other writers um yeah and i'm not i'm not familiar uh with with this author but you 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 kind of juxtapose um nussbaum with a critic of hers papa Daki. am i pronouncing that right i think so okay um so yeah so papa Daki says that uh these examples that nussbaum gives aren't really uh, objectification and Nussbaum goes on to to spin a lot of these as they can be innocuous or positive forms of objectification. Right. Um, and I think um, sex is the kind of examples that she she uses, right? Like you could there there's a way in which she argues you could permissibly ob- objectify someone sexually, or but even, I mean, or even on Nussbaum's view, desirably objectify someone. Yeah, it could yeah. even be in certain contexts. It could even be a desirable or a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Papa Daki, you, you have this quote from her. She says, we treat objects as not having any autonomy or subjectivity whatsoever. We do not treat objects as lacking in autonomy and subjectivity the one moment and then go on to treating them as autonomous subjects the rest of the time. You know, it would be insane for me to do that with a chair, for instance. Um, right. But she continues, furthermore, since objects clearly do not have humanity, we do not at any time acknowledge respect or try to promote their humanity doing so would be absurd even problematic so i'm i'm wondering if um instead of trying to collapse you know the concept of objectification as strongly as she is i wonder if she could just say that there is it seems like there's an obvious difference between non-conscious objects versus objectification of conscious objects um which it it was kind of odd. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm not understanding the debate there, but I found it odd that she criticized Nussbaum 
in that way because when when i objectify someone and maybe i'm kind of viewing this too much through like the strassonian terms um it seems like i do kind of degrade someone's status as an agent to an object and view them closer to the way i would view a chair than the way in which i would view someone in just you know normal agentic interactions yeah so i think uh, two two points on the debate there first i don't think that papadaki thinks that you can't slide back and forth between okay um an ob- i i don't think she thinks that yeah, that you, that you can't slide back and forth between objectifying attitudes and non-objectifying attitudes. I think the idea is, and maybe this is a straw, maybe this is a Strassonian point that in general, the, the possibility of, how do I put this? That, that the possibility of being objectified means that you already occupy a certain conceptual space, mm-hmm. right? So you can't, you can't actually objectify a chair yeah, because it can't, because it can't occupy a non-objectifying space. Mm-hmm. If that, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's the, okay. I think that's the idea. And so the possibility of objectification means, I think mm-hmm. that you're already in the space where certain kinds of reactive attitudes are, I mean, to put it in those terms yeah. are, are appropriate. Uh, I think and this is the lens or the way in which I tried to do the exposition. I think the crux of the debate between Papadaki and Nussbaum is really on, on this question of whether it's, it's possible to objectify someone willingly, mm. whether objective or, or to put it differently, whether objectification can be a good thing. Yeah. Um, and I, again, I, I note in that chapter that at a certain point, we're getting into really fine-grained verbal disputes about, well, how are you how are we using or deploying the, the yeah. word objectification? I'm more sympathetic to the idea that, well, look, if I want you to treat me in a certain way as an object, then that by itself means that you're not treating me as an object, right? I mean, I'm I'm expressing hmm. to you, I'm expressing to you my desire, mm-hmm. my consent, my choice all of those things. And hence, even if you're quote unquote, treating me as an object, um, I'm not being objectified because I'm being given a voice in the, in the process. Uh, Langton's, so I always, I also talk about Ray Langton's work on objectification. I think she's pretty insightful Mm. on this particular point. Um, In her book, uh, Sexual Solipsism, she talks about a lot of these different, a lot of these different issues. Um, And she actually, so drawing the parallel between sports and pornography, she, she makes the point that a lot of what is promoted in pornography is the idea that the people involved um, are doing this willingly and desiringly and with their consent and that they want to be treated in the ways that they're being treated. That's even though if it might appear they're being treated as objects, they, what's lying in the background is the assumption that this is how they want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether that's true of the porn industry more generally or all instances, and she thinks it's not true, mm. um, that's, that's, that's the same kind of conceptual, I don't know the exact word I'm looking for, different conceptual spaces, I think, that, yeah. that allow, the, allow it to do its work. Yeah, okay. So, so Langton, um, yeah, I had this highlight from her, so this is you summarizing her it's problematic because the objectifier focuses on the bodies of others to the exclusion of their subjectivity so is that i was wondering if that assumes a mismatch or a disconnect between the way their body would be treated and how they would desire for it to be treated if we were going on your kind of threshold account where if you ask me to objectify you in some way and i do it i'm not in a deep sense objectifying you because you've already kind of consented to it yeah, I think that's 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 basically okay. That's basically what I think, <laughs> and hence, but but hence, but but precisely because I want you to do it, you can't, right? You're not objectifying me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think there's a so 
at a certain point, look, I think, I think the objectifying attitude or stance or view or approach um, is something we can do that makes no external difference to the outside world in terms of how we behave. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's possible. Yeah. Um, So I think we can, I mean, I think it's possible to just go around objectifying people and, and no one is the wiser, no one knows anything, (laughs) right? Yeah. Because it doesn't manifest itself in any change in our behavior. So it is really an an outlook. It is really a, a view, a question about how we are viewing someone that I think's at issue. And then, you know, there's an interesting question about whether that's wrong intrinsically. It's really mm. hard. It's really hard, I think, to, it, I mean, I'm inclined to think it is actually, mm. but it's hard to explain why, <laughs> um, yeah. except that it's a false, it's a false view. People aren't, op- people aren't objects. Mm. Um, the case I try to make in the, in the chapter is that it, there's at least some potential for trickle down effects of a, an objectifying attitude. And this is something that case has made explicitly in um, anti-pornography, some anti-pornography literature that the tendency to objectify women in pornography leads to the tendency to objectify women more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that can have, you know, that can have trickle down effects in terms of how women are treated. Um, I think it's possible in the same way in sports and the example I give as someone who spent a lot of time in the youth sports industrial complex is that you see how this trickles down to youth sports, uh, you know, pretty clearly when you, you hear all the insane things that happen on the sidelines, um, where you forget that not only are they people too on, you know, the U 12 soccer field, but they're kids. But they're U twelve. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 But 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 I mean the way in which the tendency to impose the the mindset we have when we're watching a game on television where it's professionals, highly paid professionals playing, mm. um, to translate that to different contexts is at least I think potentially potentially a program problem. It's obviously an empirical question whether this is actually how it plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, but having I think I have decent anecdotal evidence that um it it does in at least some cases and i you know whether or not trying to avoid the pitfalls of objectification as i label the chapter in our fandom in our more general fandom will prevent that um in other problematic contexts uh, mm. i'm not sure it's definitely you know it's definitely changed the way i like to think that i've always had youth sports in pretty decent perspective, um, at least avoiding the worst versions of insanity. Mm. Um, but it's, it's changed my view even more as I've sort of thought about the ways in which, you know, well, look, it's not just that like all athletes are, all athletes are people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, You know, what's interesting. So if, if we're, if we're kind of looking at professional sports through that threshold, um, look, look of objectification, I guess. So the, kind of the grounding of why you you find reasonable problems with the way professional sports are viewed by fans is not well maybe so i don't know so it so there's a question of is it is are the problems intrinsically due to objectification of professional athletes or is it that in consenting to be objectified you know signing the sports contract to play on a team we are not as um, as I'm blanking on her name. As Langton puts it, we're not treating uh, their bodies in objectifying, you know, sports athletes in a way that they would consent to. So, is it objectification qua objectification, or is it objectification qua the way we treat them after we objectify them for you? I mean, I think so. I think for Langton's bit, and I I think that her addition to Nussbaum's list where she talks about silencing uh, is really important, is a really important piece of the puzzle because I don't think that athletes consent to being silenced. Yeah. Um, and this connects to the, the issues of, you know, sticking to sports and speaking out on issues and having lives off the field. Mm. Um, I don't think that they are whatever their 
whatever they're agreeing to subject their bodies to in the service of doing their jobs on the field, hmm. I don't think they're consenting to be silenced to being off silenced. It. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a, that's a really, you know, again, this, this was initially the, the main lens through which I was thinking about ethical problems in football, having to do with concussions and mm. bodies and injuries and all that sort of stuff. And I still think it's useful in thinking about that, but it really kind of came out more forcefully with Colin Kaepernick and, uh, pr- you know, athlete protests yeah. um, and how we're to think about athlete protests. And if you want to say, well, look, you agreed to, you agreed, you signed the contract, you agreed to play. I think that, that you, that's fair. Right. I mean, that's their, that's their job. Um, where it's interesting, whether it's college athletes jobs or, or, or <laughs> not, but yeah. um, you know, that's, that's your job, but that doesn't mean that you agreed to, you know, not say anything about anything else ever. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, you know, the connection between athletes who want to talk about things other than sports um, is why there's at least some light that the objective, that specifically the notion of objectification can shed hmm. um, on that particular issue. Yeah. Oh, we should. Okay. We should end on, on the silencing question, but, but before we get that, I just want to close the loop on the objectification stuff Um, because, okay. So what you said clarified things for me, and I think I understand where I kind of fit with respect to, to you in the, in the book and Papadaki and Nussbaum. The the one thing that I thought was very, it's did, I did strongly disagree with. So you in, in summarizing Papadaki say, So on her view, the idea that objectification could occur in a context where the autonomy and subjectivity of another is deeply respected is contradictory. So she's saying if one's autonomy and subjectivity are being respected, then one's not being objectified, no matter what things might look like to an an external observer. And I, I just thought that that seemed very wrong in the way that you could objectify another and precisely take into account their feelings and desires and intentions as kind of variables. You know, Strassen has the language of manipulation, something to be accounted for, right? And I, it, it strikes me that I could do that in a positive and a negative way with respect to someone. So if I was trying to manipulate you into doing something, a, a crucial aspect of me doing that is going to be me taking into account your desires, um, you know, in, in kind of motivating you to, to either do the things that I want or not. And I could be in a beneficent way towards you or a very pejoratively manipulative way. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's certainly true. I'm just not inclined to see those as instances of, of objectification. Okay. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So because of um, your threshold view. Well, I don't, yeah, it, I also, um, so take certain form forms of like just in incredible cruelty, you know, anecdotes from Nazi concentration camps of how Nazi guards treated mm. Jewish prisoners. Mm-hmm. There's an inclination to say that, well, they objectified them. They treated them as, you know, lacking subjectivity. They were just objects, but I think mm. a far more plausible analysis as actually no um they very much took subjectivity yeah. uh, into account they just didn't they they used it in a particular way yeah or i don't know a recent example i don't know if you've seen the seen or read the underground railroad uh colson whitehead's no novel or it's an amazon series um looking at slaveholding in the american south and it's very clear that the distinctive forms of cruelty mm. as portrayed, I mean, it's a fictionalized narrative that has a kind of um, uh, fantastic in the sense of fantasy layer okay. over it. But the the core elements of a lot of the encounters are deeply rooted in, mm. you know, uh, historical facts. A lot of the distinctive cruelty uh, that slave owners exercised mm. on enslaved people precisely took account of their subjectivity and so the claim isn't well that's not wrong <laughs> the claim <laughs> yeah. is just 
the claim is just it's not objectification. And in fact, I mean, I'm I'm not someone that tends to put these things in mm -hmm. matters of degree, talking about what's worse than than what, but it's clear to me, and I think you hi rightly highlight that there are distinctive forms of cruelty mm. that that latch onto the fact that you know that someone has a certain kind of subjectivity. Mm. Um, and I just, I just don't think that that that's the lens. I don't think the lens of objectification is the right lens to think about those sorts of things. Um, the uh, Australian philosopher Raymond Gaetas has a series of essays uh, published our common um, in book form, Our Common Humanity, in which he he explores some of this a lot. And Gaetas' work was really influential on my dissertation and so on. And he um, kind of speaks eloquently to precisely this dynamic mm. yeah i know in a, way, um, in a way that i find pretty convincing okay i'm not familiar with that i'll have to check it out yeah. yeah the the kind of examples that i was using and and you really highlighted them i think paul bloom kind of writes about this in his work on you know empathy um and he had a i think he had an op-ed in in the atlantic or the new yorker or something about dehumanization where a lot of um a lot of the atrocities that we see aren't actually a result from dehumanizing someone. They're a result of really imbibing their humanity and hating them for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. I, again, I, I, I find, I find this analysis of a lot of these cases pretty, pretty compelling. So yeah, yeah objectification is, is in my view, bad, <laughs> mm -hmm. but it's certainly, again, going back to our themes about other lenses you might, might use. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the only way that we can disrupt mm. human relationships. In some cases, it, it might not be the worst way, mm. um, but it is it is a way that I think, again, if the theme of the book is to try to highlight some of the ways in which the relationship between players and fans can go awry, mm. um, this is one that I think might be might be missed some. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to, I, I want to follow up on reading Nussbaum's and Papadaki's work um, because they both seem interesting. Uh, so let's let's um because we're we're over an hour at this point, but I want to talk about. I really I I also had mixed feelings about the silencing question. Yeah. Because so I well now I'm thinking about it in a different view because I originally had the question of is silencing really objectifying to to athletes because there's the obvious way in which and you've already pointed this out, you're just an athlete. You're, you're this kind of thing almost that's supposed to entertain me. I don't care, you know, shut up about X, whatever X is. Um, and that seems like an obvious way in which silencing is objectifying, but then there's another way in which, uh, and, and this might just be the terminological debate we've been talking about, but there's another way in which one could silence an athlete in a very reactive kind of hateful way. Right. Like it, where they, in the Paul Bloom sense, really, really kind of hate them for what they're saying as a human being, not really as an athlete. Yeah. I wonder if it just comes down That's, to how they silence. Well, them. so this is, uh, no, I mean, um, I think there's a difference. I don't work this out in any detail and I don't have it worked out in any detail well, in much detail, I, I think there's a difference between silencing an athlete from speaking on anything with the stated reason that they're an athlete and it's your job to play. Mm. There, I think there's a difference between that, which I take as a kind of paradigm instance of objectification mm -hmm. and then wanting to silence athletes because they're talking about things that we don't yeah. or because we don't like them personally or because we we think they're saying dumb things or mm. we think they're saying dangerous things or they saying things that we disagree with and this sort of goes back to something we were talking about earlier some tension well if you think athletes have a right to speak mm. does that mean they have a right to speak when they're saying things that you think are wrong or false or even uh potentially harmful mm. um and Again, I, I don't have this worked out in a ton of detail. I mean, I have I have my own reactions to athletes when they speak out and say things that I find abhorrent. And I will find myself sometimes saying, 
well, you're just a effing basketball player. Like, why do we care what you have to say about this? Mm. And then I think, well, <laughs> is that just because I don't, I'm not agreeing with what you say? I, I'll, if you were saying something that I liked, I would have a different sort of reaction. Mm. And I think the response is like all of us, um, athletes have a right to speak. Um, and I think there's a difference between responding to the content of what someone says mm. and trying to shut down their right to speak at all. And so I think I've, I've tried to disentangle those things to, to not allow myself to say, you're just a basketball player. Why do we care what you have to say about this? Mm. Because I think that that's, that's not a, that's not a good reason to not listen to someone. We're all just people who have moral views that we're allowed to, to speak. I think if you then say, well, I don't like, I think that you're wrong. <laughs> and I wish that you wouldn't say this because I think it's false and dangerous and potentially hateful and harmful. That's not, that's not objectifying. That's just, and that's not even, I would even, I would suggest that's not even silencing. That's just responding yeah. to speech that we think is, is bad. So yeah. again, I don't have this worked out in any sort of night, neat and tidy way, but I, I do think that there's a difference between those those two sorts of responses. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was kind of torn. And maybe my my conflict is because on a kind of a moral level, you're, you're, you're right, everyone does have a right to express their opinion. And no one should be. I mean, cer certainly no one should be fired, you know, for like, you know, Aaron Rodgers shouldn't be fired. Well, that's a different that's a tricky question, because it comes down to like harming others in a sense. But like, um, it, it would be insane to have fired you know lebron james for speaking out against you know police police brutality right and and there was was he on the celtics there was some player who responded to him right and it would be insane for the league to sanction either of them right yeah. um so that's that's something i totally agree on i think the weird tension that i have is maybe due to an epistemic side or an epistemic question where there is this weird obsession that fans have with, how do I want to put it? Yeah. I've noticed a phenomenon where people will give maybe epistemic undue attention to athletes' opinions on something in a way that it doesn't really seem to make any epistemic sense, right? So like if, if, if um, Kyrie Irving is against the vaccine, People will latch on to that opinion with, I've got to think the understanding that he doesn't probably know anything about vaccines in a deep sense. Like he certainly doesn't know more than any medical expert does. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our tendency to pay, I mean, this is, again, this is a double-edged sword that tends probably to track with whether we agree with what the athlete is saying. <laughs> um, and so you're, you're, you put it in terms of epistemic sense. I mean, if you put it in terms of whether they have any authority, mm. any, any special authority to, to speak out on what they're saying, um, in almost every case, the answer is going to be no. Yeah. But, but <laughs> that's true for most people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's true for actors or musicians that speak out on these sorts of things. That's true for our crazy uncles at, you know, um, Thanksgiving. Yep. That's true of, that's true of pretty much everything. Um, and so I, I am not, I'm not of the view that this isn't exactly connected, but I don't th think we shouldn't objectify athletes. I also don't think we should pedestal mm. them. Um, and I am definitely, I don't engage with this in much detail in the book, but I am, I am in the camp that thinks athletes aren't, and in fact, shouldn't be role models, shouldn't mm. be regarded as role models. They're just people like, they're, like the rest of us who happen to do extraordinary things often um, on the field of play. And that's consistent with, you know, them having all sorts of other foibles. And I guess the, again, just to go reiterate a point I've probably made too much already. I, I think the difference is, are you trying to silence them and deny their quote unquote right to speak mm. because they're an athlete or are you responding to the, the content of what they have to say? And I also think it's good to police our own 
responses in terms of how we respond to athletes that say the things that we like and agree with, you know, um, LeBron tends to say things that I agree with, uh, Kyrie Irvin does not. (laughs) And so is my response to them. Oh, you know, look, well, listen to what LeBron has to say because he has some special insight or is it just, well, he's saying stuff I already agree with Mm. and Kyrie's not, um, I think that's, it's still fair to respond to the content of what they say Mm. in the same way that it's fair to respond to the content of what anybody says. Um, it, we shouldn't silence athletes, but neither should we just let them say, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. free speech comes with the right to be criticized. Um, I think just criticizing them because you're just a stupid basketball player, uh, is, is kind of what the reaction that I want want us to avoid yeah i I totally agree it also seems like a lazy way to criticize people you know the like the there was some i remember i I don't the last two years have been so crazy i don't even remember if this was in 2020 or 2021 but there was some no one no one knows anything those two years of the same year in my mind yeah um and anything before and anything before that the those two years is like this undifferentiated blob before like of normal time 2000 yeah yeah 2015 (laughs) that's true i remember remember there was some damning um juxtaposition on on it was circulating twitter but i'm sure it was on youtube and everything i I think it was fox news hosts and i don't remember who they juxtaposed this to but someone literally said the words shut up and dribble about i think it was lebron right and then probably (laughs) and then I, i i there was some and it was also bad because LeBron's obviously black and the person they juxtaposed it to was white. There was some white actor or, or so, I don't remember what he was, but he said something about the, 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 the protests of the lockdowns and they were fawning over him and, you know, celebrate. Yeah. And it was just this, you know, damning juxtaposition that I thought of in, in reading this. Which again, and then those reactions, those, the reaction that you can have to what they say is, is perfectly fair game. I mean, you don't have to agree with what LeBron has to say. Mm. Um, but but criticizing him because he's a basketball player and telling him to just shut up and dribble is yeah you know, that's that strikes me as objectifying <laughs> that, it strikes me that way too yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. all right um well adam thanks so much for uh, for doing this i had a great time this is a, a yeah. fun episode a really good a good read ton of fun i really appreciate the conversation yeah so i'll link to um you know, the book and, and your website and everything in, in the notes below, but is there anywhere that you want to point people to, to, to follow up on, on your work? Um, you can, uh, yeah. If you go to my professional website, I keep that pretty well up to date. You can drop me a line there. I'm on Twitter at AJ Cadillac. Um, I don't tweet a ton, um, but if you follow me, I will probably follow you back and you can DM <laughs> me there. That's perfectly fine too. Okay, cool. All right. Stay on the line, Adam, but thanks again for doing this. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Well, I'm really thankful to Adam for, uh, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our talk, and I hope you found it um, enlightening as well. If you want to support me and what I'm doing on this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Jordan Myers. You can share the show on Twitter or social media generally. You can rate it on Apple Podcasts, uh, like and subscribe um, to YouTube or your RSS feeds, and you can also connect with me. Uh, you can email me at Plato's Cave Podcast at gmail.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jordan underscore C underscore Myers. And all of those links and more will be in the description below. And as always, thank you for listening and keep struggling to escape the cave. <laughs>